everybody here, just look around the room. You are a hero for coming to church in this weather today. So give yourselves a hand and give this worship team another hand. And all the people who set up this morning in a driving range, they are my heroes for sure. I love this church because it is an unselfish church. And you all mean so much to us and to our hearts. You are a blessing to us. Uh, and uh, I want to invite you at home. Uh, I, you're sort of, you know, chicken to not be out here this morning and be watching at home, but we'll give you a break today. Uh, but if you still are around here in South Baltimore particularly, come on out. It's great down here. And there's a festival setting up all around us today. That's what's going on. Uh, I'm sure they're not pleased with the weather, but they're going to play too. So Baltimore is alive this morning. And I want to pray for our message, pray for this word. Uh, I'd invite you to open at home your, and hear your Bibles to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll introduce this book, this great, great letter of Paul. Um, and I want to pray this morning too, uh, while we stand, if we could just um, close our eyes and lift up our, uh, our folks who, like, like Paula Huggins, Jazz, and others who have been chronically sick. Um, they are hanging in there. There's lots going on, and uh, uh, I've been in touch with uh, these families this week, and um, I just want to lift them all up in prayer because I know they're on your hearts too. Father, we lift up our sisters, Jasmine, um, Paula, others who are uh, just deep in the throes of illness, and we pray that you will continue to intervene in ways that will make enormous difference for their health, uh, for their futures, for their families. We love them here at Grace City. And uh, Father, there comes times when we just give, give our troubles to you, and we give this trouble of illness to you now. And Father, we pray that this morning that you will continue to meet us in worship uh, on a day that uh, gives glory to you in the rain. Uh, we thank you for the warmth of your Holy Spirit uh, and the fresh wind uh, of your grace in this place. So we thank you now in Jesus' name, and you may be seated as you say, amen, 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 amen. Well, open your Bibles, like I said, to 1 Thessalonians 1. I missed you all last week. I got my first uh, dose of COVID. How many have had COVID yet in their lives, right? Bunch of you. Uh, I had my first bout. Uh, so let me um, say I missed you. Thank you to Pastor Kristen Hannigan, who stepped in with all of, I don't know, two, three hours notice. It was awesome. So she did great. Shared for Kristen. That was fantastic. Um, but I, I want to introduce to you our new series that we're calling The Gospel at Work. The Gospel at Work. And we're going to go through the, all the chapters of the first letter of Paul to the Thessalon Thessalonican church. And in the spirit and habit of our last series, Bob Boyer, I have a matching song for this series. John Crooks, you'll know this one. It's uh, if, if I Had a Hammer, written by John. Any idea who wrote If I Had a Hammer? Pete Seeger. John is a font of music trivia. Uh, in 1949, before, long before I was born, it didn't become popular until after uh, I was a child, uh, in 1962, by Peter, Paul, and Mary. Anybody remember them? Uh, but here's, here's why this, this song matches the series, John. It's this, because by the end of the song, there's three verses that now combine into three tools for growth, and it's the hammer of justice, the bell of freedom, and the song of love between my brothers and my sisters. That's not bad. That's not a bad match for this series, The Gospel at Work, because these three tools, church, foreshadow the many, many, many gospel tools that we're going to see over the next five weeks. 
And I want to just put a quarter in the meter here for a, morning, for a moment, as Corey Barnes says, and say this about the gospel at work. As I get older uh, and ever more used to preparing a weekly sermon, I find that my love for the scriptures grows ever more profound, ever deeper. And I'm partial to the Bible, Alan, for its encouragement, but, but not so much for the encouragement, though there is plenty of that. I more so am partial to scriptures because of its capacity as the living word of God to address and provide strategies that engage with our most complex questions around issues and divisions and difficulties and troubles in our lives. And we're going to see in the weeks ahead, so let's, all of these tools in the weeks ahead, so let's start with a, with a game that I think the Bible would encourage. And here's the game. So just watch this because I'm going to ask you to participate with me at home to watch this. You have probably heard it said, knowing what I know now, if I had it all to do over again, I would blank. Anybody ever thought that question before? Nod your heads. So let's pretend for a moment. Let's play the first part of this game. Let's pretend for a moment that you have it all to do over again. You can return at this moment to any day in your past to relive your life differently. But you must do it. You must do it without knowing what you know now. You must do it. You, you will have a second chance at a different outcome. But you must return to that day that you choose with no memory of what you did or how it turned out. You ready for that, Kelly Feely? Will you trade your current circumstances and relationships for different choices, Bob Boy? Will you, the jobs you take, the friends you make, the children you have, where you live, it might all be different, it might be better, it might be worse, but you get to choose. But here's the second half of the game that I really want us to play this morning. Here it is. Are you ready? This has already happened, Lil. It's already happened. The original you was given the opportunity to return to any specific day in your past, and this is the day you chose. This day, this rainy Sunday in Baltimore. Everything that originally happened after this moment has been erased, and your second chance has now begun. And I want to ask you this morning, is there something that you can decide today or a choice that you can make that will alter your future for good, for God, for gospel work? The only thing you can know for sure is this. With every decision we make, Grace City, we pass a point of no return and we wonder what might have been. You'll see this in the next six weeks. The Apostle Paul provides the tools, the gospel at work, to prevent our second guessing and allow us to live life to the fullest in Christ. It's complex, but the tools are here. Let me give you some background in this letter to the Thessalonians. Paul had established the Thessalonican church amidst great personal danger during a three-week visit, just three weeks that he was there, uh, in somewhere around 49 AD, 49 AD. And about a year later, Paul is in Corinth and he writes this letter. It's his first letter in the New Testament, you know, in terms of timeline, it's his first. And it's uh, about a year later, he's in Corinth and he writes this letter that we're going to examine to the Thessalonican church. Here's the introduction. Take a look on your screen. Take a look on your slides at home. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Now notice as you read these first two verses that, that Paul gives two addresses, two addresses for the young church. 
One is geographical, and the other is spiritual. They lived in Thessalonica, the way we live in Baltimore. But more importantly, their address is this. They can be found in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Grace City, as Paul begins, I want us to begin this letter knowing this. We must see ourselves as primarily new creatures with a new residence in the Lord Jesus Christ, in God the Father, citizens of heaven first, even before Thessalonica, even before Baltimore, Maryland, America, citizens of heaven. That's our address. Now, Grace City, within 20 years of writing this letter, uh, Paul, is about, it's about 50 A.D., within 20 years of writing this letter, the whole of the ancient Near East was convulsed in warfare and rebellion. Y'all find us, there's plenty of seats right up front. I love people in the front, so come on in and sit down. The front is where I really focus, so I just want you to know you're going to be right on my eyes here. But within 20 years of this letter pen, the whole of the ancient Near East was convulsed in warfare and rebellion. The city of Jerusalem was overrun. The temple was destroyed. People were taken captive. And the movements that culminated in these events 20 years later had already begun when Paul wrote this letter. Now listen, we too live in dangerous days, right? Somebody say amen. Complex days at least. We have a post-truth society marked by distrust of political process that leans into violence all around us. We have war in Europe. We're, thinking, we're tinkering around with genetics and artificial engineering. Add to this the obvious climate weirding that is going on, the now familiar uh, menace of pandemic, which I caught last week, the spread of famine, the renewed threat of nuclear war, and you're going to hear more about that this week, I have no doubt. Um, and it's clear, it's clear that we're living in a world in crisis. But the apostle wants the Thessalonican church to know, and he wants the Baltimore church to know, he wants all of us to know, that, not, that he wants us to grasp the colossal capacity of Christ followers that they can bring because of, of, of their relationship with the God of the universe, the capacity they bring to bear in response to a world in crisis. That's what he wants us to know. Now, you can find the historical narrative of 1 Thessalonians in Acts 17. So I'd encourage you at home and when you go home today, this week, read Acts 17. Paul preached there for three weeks on three Sabbaths, and the Jews of the city became so enraged by his gospel teaching about Jesus that Paul flees the scene. The Jews create a riot designed, calculated to destroy the new church. So Paul understands as he leaves that there's a ton of pressure on this new, young, new, brand new church and these new believers. So a year later from Corinth, Paul reaches out with this letter. And to understand chapter 1, i got to go into chapter 3 for a minute and show us something that caused Paul, that spurred Paul on to write this letter. Look at chapter 3, verses 6 and 8 with me. Timothy, Paul's agent, has just now come to us from you, from Thessalonica. So Timothy has been in Thessalonica. He's now traveled to Corinth, and he's bringing a report to Paul. He's brought good news about your faith and your love in the midst of all this danger. Good news. For now, I love this. This is Paul's pastoral heart. Now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. I so get that, Kelly, what it's like to really live, to understand that the church is standing firm in the Lord. 
So with such good reasons, Chinway, to celebrate this new church, listen to today's outline in verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Here's our outline. It's right here. This is the time when for a pastor it's just great when you're preparing a sermon because Paul gives us the outline. Here it is in verse 3. Three points. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Three points. And of course, this is a foreshadowing of what he will famously write later in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Many of you know that, where Paul says, and now abide these, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. But, but this is before that writing. Here, Paul, for the first time, brilliantly summarizes these three things in a single sentence, and then he expands on all three throughout chapter 1. So I am calling this message this morning, this sermon, the message that works. The message that works as we see Paul put wheels on these three points that define an authentic follower of Jesus Christ in a complex world. And the first consists of the work of faith, the work of faith, and for that we look at verses 4 and the beginning of 5. It says this, for we know... Brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and, watch this, deep conviction. Grace City, this pillar of the message that works is primarily personal. This is between you and me, between you and God and me and God. It's primarily personal and it's on God's initiative. Don't forget Paul says that we all begin with God's embrace. We begin with God. For we know, he writes, that he has chosen you. Everything starts with God's love for us and his choosing to embrace us. So we don't congratulate ourselves for our faith. We don't congratulate ourselves. We thank God for his grip on us. Are you with me? Because the world at large often conceives of some sort of perpetually angry God who is disappointed in us and that we need to win over. It's our job, right, Amy? we got to win him over and show him how great we are. But that is not heaven's truth. The reality is found in John 3.16, which you've ever watched an NFL game on TV, you've seen this verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And if you didn't get that NFL joke, turn on an NFL game today. It starts this week. You'll see what I mean. But at the same time, God does at the same time that he loves us, he recognizes that we are deluded and deceived, and if left to our own devices, we tend to pursue things that will destroy us. So these two things go hand in hand. So God, in his unending love, is constantly intervening in humanity, in human life. Jesus said it this way. Watch. Um, John 6, 44. No one can come to me except... My Father, draw them. This is God's initiative, God's intervention. We're drawn to him as he issues the invitation. And Paul outlines the characteristics of this invitation in verses 4 to 5. And first is this. Our gospel came to you in word. The scripture In Thessalonica, the scriptures were preached. The truth was declared. It is through the word of God that we are awakened to move toward God. It begins with the word. It begins with the gospel. But secondly, we see that the gospel then comes in power. 
It is real. It is gripping. The gospel has the ability to compel us because it's not mere legend. Jesus did live. He did move among humanity. He died a criminal's death on the cross. He was raised from the dead. All of this marks the actual authentic truth power of the gospel. And don't forget that behind this power is the reality of God's spirit, the reality of God's presence. His spirit can fill the human spirit. He does actually minister to the human heart, to the deepest needs in human lives, and he ministers with divine power. So his word comes in power, and finally, watch this, the gospel came with full conviction. Full conviction. It moved the wills of the Thessalonians, and they acted on it. It's personal interaction. It's God's invitation. And they yielded their lives to God. And that completes the work of faith accomplished by any who have surrendered to God's initiative. And I want to say this to all of you online and here uh, in the pavilion. Some of you may have been coming to this church or another church for years. You have been hearing the gospel for years, but you have never surrendered your heart. But that is the final necessary step to complete this work of faith that Paul writes about. Ultimately, it is our wills that must be moved by this invitation of God. Jesus said it this way in Revelation 3.20, which is an image that as a teenager meant so much to me. Do you remember this? Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice, and invites me in, and will open the door, I will come in, I will live with them, and they with me. That is a beautiful image of how this work of faith ends with full, deep conviction. That's what happened in Thessalonica, and that's what still happens today when we surrender our hearts to Jesus. Maybe this is your day when you open the door. Come talk to me if you're thinking about that. So what follows the work of faith? Well, I'm glad you asked. In response to faith, God forms us as we become known by a labor of love. The labor of love, which we saw in verse 3. And whereas the work of faith is primarily personal, watch this, the labor of love is primarily communal. It's primarily communal. We labor together and we love together. Paul describes this beginning with the last part of verse 5. Take a look. You know how we lived among you for your sake. We lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You welcomed the message in the midst of your suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. The Lord's message rang out from you, your faith in God, your faith as a community in Thessalonica has become known everywhere. And he ends, therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. Don't you love that? We always want to know what the PR is. He goes, we don't need to say anything. Because it's so real. This verse describes the labor of love, and it involves two specific indicators, church. Here's the first sign. The labor of love changed the attitude of the Thessalonians toward their suffering. Remember, they're living in really harsh, dangerous times. The Jews of the city have, want to destroy this young church. They learned, but, but what they have learned here in their labor of love is it's not about them. It's, it's not about me. It's about you. It's about us. It's about we. It's about divine solidarity with God's creation design. It's about the community. It's about sacrificial loving so that others might thrive. It's about you. It's not about me. 
It's about us together. Listen, they were going through so much pain. They were banished at work. They they were hounded out of their homes. They were imprisoned for their newfound faith. But instead of complaint, Paul has heard this report. They just exude the joy given by the Holy Spirit. In the midst of that much pain, there's this joy. And they became known throughout the region by the fruit of their labor of love. Church, that's a God thing. That's not a human thing. This is God's design in the labor of love. Now, I like the translation labor here as opposed to work in the work of faith that we just talked about, and here's why. There are two different New Testament Greek words that are used in both these situations. They're used differently, Uh, and the, the, the words are this, ergon and kapos. Now, ergon is used in the work of faith that we just talked about, and it describes work that is pleasant and stimulating and self-rewarding. That's the work of faith. That's the word used to describe our personal work of faith interaction with God. But kapos used here in translated labor, which I think is pretty good, kapos used here to describe labor of love on behalf of others, this word implies toil that is strenuous and sweat-producing. This is the hard work. Are you with me? This is, this is the harder work. Now, I, I, we get all jazzed about our work of faith and our testimonies and telling people how we became Christians and how cool that is, and that's great. But that's the easy part. The work of the, the labor of love is when we're called to be known by our love for one another in a communal sense. That's the hard part. That's the sweat producing. It's within the labor of love where so much good is birthed on behalf of others. So much fruit is harvested on behalf of others. And though the expense is great, we can rejoice then in the midst of trouble. Who hasn't rejoiced when something great, you've been used, but been employed in the labor of love and something great in the midst of trouble? Who, who hasn't been edified by that? I remember um, when my middle daughter had her first child and uh, Sue and I were at the hospital and uh, she's in labor and we're actually in the hallway and we can hear the labor pains. And for a father with a daughter, that's just like, really? Can we, can we give her something? You know, I, I, was, I was obviously distressed hearing my daughter distressed, you know. Big deal, Dad. You were distressed, right? She, it didn't move her much later on, but it was moving me. Her nurse at the time, in, in that particular hours, came out and walked by me and saw me in distress. And when she walked back in, and I could see that her name tag on her, on her nurse was Comfort. Her name was Comfort. How cool is that? And she said to me, honey, honey I, you know why we call this labor, don't you? And I, you know, just got big eyes. She said, we, we call it labor, not torture. Because at the, end of, at the end of this, the fruit is overwhelmingly good. That's why we call it labor. And then she disappeared and went behind the door. But she comforted. She comforted me. Church, it's within this labor of love where so much good is birthed. So much fruit is harvested. And there's more. There's more. The second mark of love's labor was that they shared, watch this, the gospel's good news throughout their part of the world. But watch how it happened. We usually think of that as some sort of campaign. They didn't do this by a means of great crusades. They didn't have a campaign strategy. There were no citywide meetings in a rented stadium. And we can do all that, and that's cool, but that's, that's not what Paul's talking about here in the labor of love. That's not what the Thessalonians did. They simply labored to share with their neighbors and friends what God had been doing in their lives. That was their labor of love. And then when their friends began to ask questions, 
about what had happened to them, they invited them over to share the scriptures, to share the gospel, to talk about Jesus in venues that we would call having dinner together, uh, a small group Bible study. That's what they did. They shared the love of Christ. And without any public fanfare, Paul writes this, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything more about it because they shared their lives in meals and times together. And would the Grace City be continually marked by that? I'm so grateful for your small groups. Have no doubt that they have an incredible impact in this city. So we have the work of faith, we have the labor of love, and finally take a look at the endurance of hope. Uh, the festival wants to set up, so here we go, getting quick with this. The endurance of hope, it's all in verse 10. Now, whereas the work of faith is primarily personal between you and God, and the labor of love is primarily communal, we, they, us, all in it together, the endurance of hope lives between these two dimensions. Sometimes an individual reminds the community to endure with hope. Sometimes the community reminds the individual to endure with hope. Let me, let me remind you all now of our endurance with hope. Take a look at verse 10. To wait, to wait, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now listen, today we focus a lot on Jesus' first coming, Christmas. But in the early church, I got to tell you, there was very little mention of Christmas in the early church. They rejoiced in it, they celebrated it, but they prioritized and spent most of their time talking about and looking forward to Jesus coming again. Their hope lay in that. And let's see why. By beginning, and we're going to begin with the difficult final three words of this verse, the final three words of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, the coming wrath. Somebody say coming wrath. It's hard to say, isn't it? It's like, I don't like that very much. What is God's wrath? Well, Grace City, this refers to God's controlled, settled, just, personal hostility to evil. It is his anger against evil. Evil. And as I say that, I'm not talking about a, an experience like you may have had with, with, with a family or uh, a friend or a family member who has a volcanic temper and you've suffered under that. And I'm sorry if that's happened to you and we should, should talk about that experience over coffee. I'd be happy to do that. This is not the vibe here. Paul is talking about an immovable, measured, absolute antagonism to evil. What we're reminded of here is that there is justice in God's creation design. Let me say that again. There is justice in God's creation design. And divine justice will be brought to bear in a way that is comprehensive. And that is actually the heart of Easter and Good Friday and those celebrations. And that's another sermon. We can come back to that when Easter comes. For Grace City here, we, we, we often miss in this idea of God's judgment something in our biblical study, and I want to get after it for a minute. In the Bible, God's judgment is not set up in contrast to God's goodness. It's not a contrast. God's judgment is actually featured as a proof of God's goodness. His judgment is a promise that God will not sit back and allow evil to flourish and to prosper forever. He's not like the benign grandfather that I can be guilty of with my four grandkids who sees the grandkids hurting each other and leans back and says, it's all good, we're okay. He's not like that benign grandfather. And listen, I sympathize emotionally, spiritually, in every other way. I sympathize with anyone who resents a message that tries to scare people toward God. 
Doing that is not a thing for me either. It's not a thing at all. And I actually resent it along with you. But I want to ask anyone who hates the idea of God's judgment if they would prefer that he let evil have its way. Would, they, would that be our preference? Great City, God is going to do justice. He is. That's the promise. And I actually find that comforting because there's a beautiful, wondrous, complex strategy for you and me and all who will surrender in our work of faith by which we navigate this. Because here it is, wonderfully, Grace City, our hope lies in the fact that the coming wrath is not all we've got. It's not all we've got. Church, I didn't come to Christ as a 14-year-old because of the fear of judgment. I came to Christ because Jesus was compelling because Jesus drew me in, because Jesus opened, said, I knock at the door. You want to be alongside with me? Let's go. Let's go do life together. That's what drew me in. So let's look at the final eight words. Let's add the, the five right before this, uh, the coming wrath, and see Jesus the way I first saw him and the way I think you first saw him. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Do you see it? Do you see it? Paul didn't only tell the, the Thessalonians of the coming wrath of God, and neither should you ever, ever, ever leave off with that. Don't you ever try to scare someone toward God. It doesn't work, and it's not fair, and it's not accurate in a whole. Paul told them of the rescue of Jesus. He told them of the cross, the crucifixion, the whole of the gospel. He told them of the Jesus who said this. Take a look on your screen. Jesus said this about himself. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd does what? I lay down my life for the sheep. That's the rescue. And the church at Thessalonica was born and did the work of faith and excelled in the labor of love, grasped the endurance of hope. Why? Because of Jesus, the compelling nature of Jesus Christ. Because his death was not ordinary. It paid for sin. It paid for injustice. It paid for you and me. It paid for the coming wrath. That's good news. Somebody say, that's good news. And the question is raised then, what does this mean now to you this morning as you start your life again after the, the theme of that game we played at the very beginning? Grace City, followers of Christ have no business to be discouraged or defeated or despairing. We have no reason to be passive and sit in the stands and watch the game in front of us. We have no reason to be hopeless. Do you see this in this letter? If we yield to any of these things, despair, discouragement, it's because we have forgotten this great truth about our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our rescuer. Somebody say rescuer. He is our rescuer who supplies us with the work of faith, who honors us to participate in the labor of love and gives us an ever steadfast, enduring, long-suffering endurance of our hope. Amen? Let's worship again, then we're going to come back with a call to action. I do want, I'll say that later at the call to action. So uh, uh, let's stand up and let's worship together.